0: Turn with me to the book of Ephesians, as we resume our study in Ephesians chapter 1. This morning we are in the end of verse 8 and going through verse 10. Now I explained uh, when we began this section that uh, verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians 1 in the Greek, they're, they're one long sentence, and so it's up to the translators to kind of decide where to make the breaks. Or to put the periods. And I realize that in some of your translations, I would imagine that all of chapter eight is included in the or verse eight is included in the previous section. In my text, in the New American Standard, there's a period in the middle of verse eight. And that's where I'm going to pick up. In the middle of verse eight, going through verse ten, where we read this. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven, in the heavens, and things on the earth. And that is God's word. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much again for this time to be together with your people in your word. And I pray your blessing on it. I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, take your word and apply it to our hearts. Open our eyes to see it, our ears to hear it, our hearts to receive it. And pray that you would give us the grace, O God, to see it as the sword of the Spirit. Would it cut us? would show us our need of Christ even more than we've seen it before and help us to fall more in love with him and to rest more completely in him. We'll make our prayer in his name, amen. Well, since I have been kind of so erratic over the last six weeks, and that really began as we were just starting our study in Ephesians, I feel compelled to go back and kind of, look over where we've been, try to tie some things together before we move forward in this rich book of the Bible. You know, Paul wrote this letter to those in and around Ephesus to encourage them to walk faithfully according to the calling that they'd received from God to be in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6 are very, very practical chapters. Is Paul unfolds what that looks like? What it looks like for you and for me to live as become as the followers of Christ, to, to flesh out what it is to be in Christ. But before he gets there, he spends the first three chapters focusing upon God's plan of salvation. You see, it's essential that you know who you are in Christ and how you came to be in Christ. Before you can know how it is you are to walk with Christ and before Christ. And that's what these early chapters in Ephesians are about. We, we've seen that there are several ways to look at this section, verses 3 through 14 in particular. One is to look at it from the aspect of the Trinity, to, to see how each part of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is involved in the unfolding of of our salvation. God the Father planned it. God the Son accomplished it. God the Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts. Another way to look at it is from the aspect of time. To see salvation all the way from eternity past to eternity future. Now we've already come across some of the key concepts of the Reformed faith. election and predestination. And those words cause a great deal of consternation in the Christian community. But they're biblical words. In verse 4, Paul talks about how God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And then he goes on to verse 5 to say He predestined us to adoption as sons You see, that is the fundamental teaching about salvation. It is all a work of God, planned and ordained by Him, accomplished and achieved by Him, applied and made effective by Him, all to the praise of the glory of His grace. Now, the whole matter of being in Christ is very important in Ephesians, especially here in chapter 1. God has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. This is just what we've already seen in our verses so far. God has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. He has adopted us into God's family in Christ. He has redeemed us in Christ. See, that's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who, by God's grace, is in Christ and who has in a relationship with Christ as believers we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ had our sins forgiven by his grace which the text says God has literally lavished upon us giving us a sense of dependence upon him for our salvation and all of that is by God's design according to God's plan To fulfill God's purpose and result in God's glory. Well, that brings us to our text this morning. In which I believe we find a remarkable statement about the history of the world in which we live. You know, historians have looked at the past from a number of different perspectives. But most of them are man-centered and not God-centered. I talk a lot here about how your vertical perspective will influence your horizontal perspective. That is how your view of God will determine your view of man and this world in which we live. We need to have a vertical view of history because that is the only way that you can understand and make any sense out of what has taken place, what is taking place, and what will take place. You see, God is the God of history. Some people have called it His story. Because the Bible says that what we see taking place is the unfolding of God's eternal plan. Now, we're going to deal with that hard saying next Lord's Day. When we get to verse 11. Where it says, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. I want to ask and try to answer three questions about our text this morning. And the first question is what? What is the main statement that we find in this text? Well, we find it in verse 9, and it is this, where he says, He made known to us the mystery of his will. The key word there is mystery. I've given my sermon this morning the title, The Mystery of History. Because I think that's what we find here in our text. You see, God holds the key to understanding life, past, present, and future. And in order to understand the reality of life, you must have a biblical world and life view. That means you must see the world and life from the perspective of the Bible. It is from the Bible. That we understand God's perspective, God's view of life, God's view of the world, God's view of history. You see, in the Bible, God gives us His purpose and His design for this world in which we live. After all, Genesis tells us God made it, and God has a plan for it, a plan that He is unfolding every day. Now there are two strands in God's view of history. One strand is the result of the fall. It's characterized by sin, by failure, by alienation, estrangement, discord, strife, pain, and suffering. You can only understand the dark side of the world by seeing it in view of the fall of man into sin. You see, when Adam first sinned, he rejected God's authority. He chose to go his way instead of God's way. He chose to to succumb to the temptation that Satan set before him instead of following God's clear commandment. And when Adam sinned, Everyone who came after him sinned also. We sinned in him. His sin is now passed down to us. So now, you and I are born in sin and born with sinful natures. The dark side of our world, every part of it, is the result of sin. But there's another strand in God's view of history. And that's the strand of redemption of salvation, of restoration, of reconciliation, and of renewal. It is the strand of forgiveness, of healing, of peace, and of blessing. And that comes only through the work of Christ. The only light God has given to dispel the darkness of this world is the light of Christ. It's what Jesus said He said, I am the light of the world. All human efforts to dispel that darkness will fail. It cannot be done through the best intentions or plans of man, but only by the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. You see, that is the mystery of His will that He mentions here in verse 9. God's plan of redemption God's plan to, ch- to save those whom He chose before the foundation of the world is the great mystery. You see, given the reality of man's fall into sin, given the reality of man's sinful nature, which Paul describes in Ephesians 2 verse 1 as being dead in sin, given what the Bible says about man's sinful nature, The amazing thing is that anyone is saved. That's the great question of life, isn't it? How can anyone dead in sin, estranged from holy God by the reality of their iniquity, how can anyone be saved? And that's what Ephesians answers. It's only by the grace of God. That's the great mystery. And God has revealed the mystery of his will to us. Notice the text says, He made known to us the mystery of His will. And what you need to understand is, if God didn't make it known, we wouldn't know it. You know, as we've seen throughout our study in Ephesians so far, and if there's any passage in the Bible that shows the reality of what Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, it's Ephesians 1, that God's ways are not our ways... And his thoughts are not our thoughts. You know, we sing the hymn, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. And that's true. But the great blessing, folks, is that God makes his mystery known to his people. He made known to us. He makes known to his people the mystery of his will. The idea of a mystery really runs all the way through the book of Ephesians. And the great mystery in that day, you know what the great mystery was in in Paul's day? Kind of a specific application uh, of the salvation of God. The the, the real mystery in, in Paul's day among the Jews was that, guess what? God's plan of salvation included the Gentile. Aren't you thankful for that? I know I am. Turn with me over to Ephesians 3 for just a second, just to give you a flavor of how the mystery runs all the way through this book. I'm going to read the first six verses of Ephesians 3, if I can get focused on them. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, That by revelation, there was made known to me, there it is, the mystery. As I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight. There it is again, into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as has now been revealed to his holy prophets and apostles. In the Spirit. To be specific, here it is. Here's that mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body of Christ, of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Well, that's the what? God has made known to us the mystery of His will. The second question is how? How has God made that known to us? Or, Or really, more specifically, with what attitude has God Made this known to us? That might seem an odd question to ask, but I think Paul talks about two ways that God, that God revealed it to us. Look back into verse 8. He says that God revealed to us in all wisdom, in insight. God is the God of all wisdom. And God knows all things, He has insight. Into everything. Doesn't it? And so it goes without saying that if God's going to reveal something to us, He's going to do it according to His nature. And so God's revelation of His will to His people is done according to His wisdom and according to His insight. You see, this mystery is no mystery to God. He sees it clearly. He understands it perfectly. It's in, within the bounds of his absolute wisdom and knowledge. And it's in that wisdom and with that insight that God has made known the mystery of his will to us. You might remember that in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul describes two responses to the gospel. And, and those responses really follow the, the, the two strains of, uh, of history that I outlined earlier. Uh, they mirror those Uh, responses. Uh, To those who are perishing, to the unbelievers, uh, to those living in darkness, those who are blinded by sin, the gospel is complete foolishness. But to those of us who are saved, who are redeemed, whose hearts have been changed, whose eyes have been opened by the work of the Holy Spirit, the gospel is a clear demonstration of the power of God. And what you need to understand is the gospel would still be foolishness to us if God did not choose to make it known to us. If God in his wisdom and God in his insight had not chosen to make it known to us. Now, verse 9 goes on to say that he did it According to the kind intention of his will, which he purposed in him. Now, this is the second time in Ephesians 1 where where Paul has talked about the kindness of God. You know, back in verse 5, he said that he chose us, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself according to the kind intention of his will right here in the middle of a discussion about the sovereignty of God, where he talks about election and predestination, Paul's focus is on the kindness and the love of God. And that's important to note because so often those rich biblical truths are castigated to make it seem as though God is some cold, uncaring deity who just shuts people out of heaven. And nothing could be farther from the truth. There is nothing more kind, folks, than God saving anyone from their sins. Do you get that? Until you realize you can't save yourself, you won't get it. But it's according to the kind intention of His will. God revealed His plan of salvation to His people. God's salvation is an act of kindness. The most kind thing ever done in the history of the world is God choosing before the foundation of the world to save some and predestinating them to adoption as sons. God in his wisdom, God in his insight, God in his kindness has chosen to make the mystery clear to us. And my wife loves a good mystery story. So we watch Murder, She Wrote, Monk, some of you haven't heard of those shows, you're too young, Columbo and Madlock, you know, and and, and the, the whole theme is to wait until the very end of the plot to show who committed the murder glorious thing for us as believers is we don't have to wait to the end God's revealed the mystery of his plan of salvation to those who love him, those he's called to be his people what an act of God's kindness that is and then there's a third question and that's why why this mysterious plan of salvation what's the purpose in it and behind it What's the ultimate goal of this mystery of His will which He's made known to us? Here's where we find, I think, the real solution to the mystery of history. It's in verse 10, where we read this With a view to administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, and things on the earth. You see, history has a purpose history is headed toward a goal. And it is a glorious goal. There are two key phrases in verse 10. One is the fullness of the times and the other is the summing up of all things in Christ. You see, history is pressing day by day toward a goal where everything will be centered and focused on Christ history is moving toward one great event as Paul says in Philippians 2 when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father that doesn't mean everyone will be saved but that does acknowledge one day everyone will acknowledge that he is the Lord and that he has the right to do his will and even those who are sent to eternal destruction will acknowledge the Lordship of Christ. That is where history is headed. We talk about having a Christ centered life, a Christ centered home, a Christ centered church, and a Christ centered world and life view, and all the rest. One of the reasons that's so important is because it's preparation for eternity. Because that's what heaven is going to be. Heaven is going to be a complete and total focus upon Christ. There will be a Christ centered nest there that we've never experienced before as we worship God the Father through our worship of God the Son. You see, God's plan for this world is not finished, but the end result has already been determined. We, and we don't have to wait. We don't have to wait to see where the world is headed in the fullness of time, Paul says in verse 10, in the fullness of time, when God's time is right, everything is going to be brought together, summed up, totaled together in Christ. And the text makes it clear that includes everything. Things in the heavens, And things on the earth. Now, I want you to see how that changes your perspective on life. Even in your darkest days, you know there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Even when parts of the world seem to be in complete chaos, as they do today, we know there's coming a day when it will all be resolved. Even when evil seems to be so pervasive, we know there is coming a day of judgment when everything will be made right. Even when we think we have more on us than we can possibly bear, we know it's just temporary. Because one day all of our burdens will be lifted. Even when our hearts are broken and grief and sorrow have overtaken us, we can still say, it is well with my soul. Because we know that it fits within God's eternal plan and that one day we'll be in heaven where there is no more pain No more sorrow, no more grief, and no more tears. You know, we really should feel sorry for the unbelievers because the meaning of history really is a dark mystery to them. This world of sin is all they know, they don't have the light of Christ. They don't live with the hope of the gospel. All they have is, is what they see. All they have is what they experience. And this is why the unbeliever completely continues to grab for any sense of hope they can find in this world. But you know, it's just a mirage. There's nothing there, there's no meaning, there's no substance. That's why there's so much futility and such emptiness in the world. That's why the gospel is so important, isn't it? It is the only hope. You see, it is in the gospel that we find the one who says he is the light of the world, the bread of life, the living water, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life, the resurrection and the life. It's in the gospel we see the one who has redeemed us through his blood, who's reconciled us to the Father, who gives us the assurance of eternal life. It's in the gospel we see the one who promised to come again one day and receive us to himself, who will sit on his glorious throne, who will one day separate the sheep from the goats, who will exercise complete justice on all his and our enemies. Oh, that's why it's so important to rest in Jesus. To believe in the wonderful promises He's given to us in His Word and to look in faith to the fullness of the times to the summing up of all things in Christ. We're going to conclude our service in just a moment. I sing the great hymn, Be Thou My Vision. And that really ought to be our prayer. We need God to be our vision to see things as he sees them, to live by the vertical perspective, and to know that he is the God of history who's working all things to a glorious end when we reach the fullness of time, everything is going to be focused and completely centered and summed up on his Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You can have hope in that. You can live with it, No matter what God may bring. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, who is our Redeemer, who is our hope, and we look forward to that day. We look forward out of this sinful world to that day when all things will be summed up in Christ, centered and focused on him. May our lives be that as best we can make them here.